I'm wired for optimism and possibility. Mm -hmm. I'm predisposed to a positive interpretation of the world around me. And some of that is genetic. Uh, some of that is probably biochemical. <laughs> and, and some of that is survival. This is It's Okay That You're Not Okay. And I'm your host, Megan Devine. This week on the show, author, speaker, podcast, and television host Baratunde Thurston joins me to talk about grief and joy and investing in relationships and the subversive nature of play. Settle in, everybody. All of that and more coming up right after this first break. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Bean Dad. The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because God, I can't stay where I am like I am where it is. This isn't going to work. I, I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Before we get started, two quick notes. One, this episode is an encore performance. I am on break working on a giant new project, so we're releasing a mix of our favorite episodes from the first three seasons of the show. Some of these conversations you might have missed in your original seasons, and some shows just truly deserve multiple listens so that you capture all of the goodness. Second note, while we cover a lot of emotional, relational territory in our time here together, this show is not a substitute for skilled support with a licensed mental health provider or for professional supervision related to your work. 
Take what you learn here, take your thoughts and your reflections out into your world and talk about it. Hey friends, there's so much to celebrate and there's so much to mourn with this week's guest, Baratunde Thurston. This week's episode is so stacked with joy and silliness, I cannot wait for you to hear it. Now this week's episode also talks about pain with grief stemming from personal losses and racial violence and generational grief, grief over the changing planet. And I can't wait for you to hear that either. Baratunde is an Emmy-nominated storyteller and producer operating, as he says, at the intersection of race, tech, democracy, and climate. He's the host of the PBS television series America Outdoors with Baratunde Thurston, creator and host of the podcast How to Citizen with Baratunde, and a founding partner of the new media startup Puck. His comedic memoir, How to Be Black, is a New York Times bestseller, and in 2019, he delivered what MSNBC's Brian Williams called one of the greatest TED Talks of all time. Baratunde is also really funny and kind and thoughtful and totally willing to explore topics a lot of people would probably like to avoid if they were given the chance. Nobody's given the chance to avoid this stuff when they're hanging out with me. But some of the things that we discussed in our time together, Maratunde's father died when he was a child. And we talked about how that didn't seem like a big deal when he was a kid, which is really interesting for a number of reasons. But one of them is that he's the second or third guest this season to have a parent die in their childhood. And they didn't really realize that there was grief involved there until much later in their lives. We talked about how he learned that there was grief there by getting emotional when he saw his friends being good parents to their own kids. Also fascinating. There's so much grief we don't recognize if we're not looking for it, right? It's fascinating to know also that I am not the only one who feels sadness well up in me when I see somebody being kind to someone else, like even if I am completely not involved in the thing, like seeing somebody be kind and amazing is really emotional for me. So if that's you too, the whole somebody being kind makes me a weepy thing, you are not alone in that. Baratunde, he's with you. I'm with you. <laughs> we also talked about the kind of more obvious in your face grief, the constant news cycles of black men and black boys being killed, what it's like seeing people who look like you suffering and being harmed on a regular basis. We talked about what it's like living in a world where you can be killed for just existing. And we had this really cool conversation about getting to decide what you look at, like how you see yourself and the people who look like you being portrayed. What images do you consume? Are you like consuming only painful images? What else is in there? That led us into a slightly subversive conversation about play and joy and the healing power of community. We talked about a lot of stuff. I found this conversation to be so nourishing, so life-affirming in the face of cascading pain and losses personally and collectively. There's so much bad news in this world. I don't know if you've noticed. We don't like need a distraction from the bad news. We have things we really do need to face, but we might need to find ways to let more joy exist alongside all that pain. As you'll hear Baratunde say when we get into his hope for the future, there's a lot of power and potential in our human creativity. So if you've ever wondered how to create a life that includes both grief and joy, or wondered if that's even possible, this episode is for you. 
Here's my conversation with the excellent Baratunde Thurston. Baratunde, I am so glad to have you here with me today. There are so many places that we could begin our conversation, but I was telling you before we started rolling that I've been like living in your collected works for the last couple of days, and there's just, there's so much joy in what you do Hmm. and how you show up in the world. Even when so much of what you're covering, what you're discussing, what you're getting into is really serious and really painful. And I I just like, I feel like there's this combination of celebration and grieving threading through all of your work. Does that feel, am I, am I accurate? Grief and celebration is a really accurate way to encapsulate the wide range of things I'm up to. You know, I write about, I host shows about, I talk about race and technology and democracy, really easy stuff that always brings people joy, Megan. (laughs) Bring in the joy. They can be very heavy and there is a lot to mourn. You know, there's a lot to mourn with our planet and with our relationship to nature. There's a lot to mourn with the racial history in the United States and our unwillingness to integrate it as a full part of our whole history, uh, but instead try to like pretend it didn't happen. Hmm which just makes it fester and come out sideways. Uh, There's a lot to mourn in our loss of ritual and habit and tradition because things are changing so quickly. Within a single generation, we are losing touch with ourselves. We we had millennia, at least hundreds of years, where a great-great-grandparent had the same life as their great-great-grandchild, and now an older sibling and a younger sibling are speaking different languages. Mm. That's worth acknowledging the loss of pattern and legacy in that. And we're up to some dope things, you know? We still have, we always have a chance to create something new. I think we have a better shot at it if we acknowledge the loss as opposed to pretend this death didn't happen, but it's not the end. Loss is not the end, death is not the end there's a cycle to all of this. And so I get self-motivated by remembering the cycle and trying not to get stuck in any particular piece of it, especially the grieving part of it. No one has uh, encapsulated or tried to summarize what I do as that, as <laughs> as grieving and celebrating. And it's this duality that I've I've carried for a long time. So thanks for seeing that. Yeah, I mean, that's part of my lens on the world, right? Like that yeah. is that is how I see all of it. I love that you brought up acknowledgement, right? Mm-hmm. That for me, the the entire thing here is to acknowledge what's real and tell the truth about how hard it is to be here sometimes, tell the truth about really difficult things. Yeah. I don't always go with so that we can celebrate because there there can be something kind of transactional mm-hmm. in that for me. Mm-hmm. And Again, I come back to like the the cadence and the way that you speak about things, the pacing with which you speak about things. I never got that sense from you in listening to your TED Talks or your podcasts or reading your writing. I never got the sense that you were acknowledging so that you could move past, but that there was a, a twinning. Yeah. I mean, if anything, my practice of acknowledgement has deepened over the past few years. So I'm, I'm wired for optimism mm-hmm. and possibility. I'm predisposed to a positive interpretation of the world around me. 
And some of that is genetic. Uh, some of that is probably biochemical. <laughs> and, and some of that is survival. And, you know, when faced with a certain challenge, you know, you can see it play out in my patterns with my wife. She might bring up something uncomfortable and I'll try to flip it to the, hey, we're good. And I don't do that so much anymore. Mm. I think for a long time, I didn't trust existing in the grief. Mm. And, you know, I, and if I did, it was intuitive, but not a self-aware choice. It's increasingly a choice to kind of sit with the pain, the discomfort, the loss, the mourning, and try to even be grateful for that feeling. You know, it's such a human feeling. And, and to your point, not to too quickly try to transact out of it. Like, okay, I did, I did my grieving thing today. That was five minutes of grieving. And now I can right, do- I scheduled my sadness. <laughs> yes, we can now move calendar. on with the day. I got this. <laughs> yeah, now, now we got this for the rest. And that's not true or real or honest or ultimately useful. So I, I don't think I've been escaping it, certainly not publicly, but you mentioned the TED Talk. That talk about deconstructing racism and it, I wove in personal story, which was a choice encouraged by others. Right? Mm. I had a stellar, clever, smart, funny talk with a bit of anger prepared about racism. I was good to go. <laughs> and And my wife was like, you, can go deeper. And actually, uh, one of the people at TED kind of nudged me, get more personal, get more vulnerable. There's, I sense there's more there. What's going on there? Mm -hmm. So I had these two women in my life who were encouraging me to not race through. And the final version of it, I, I didn't. Yeah. I paced it. I sat with it. I slowed it down. And it was much more powerful for me. And when I left that stage, which people didn't see as I exploded into tears, just absolutely a release, yeah. physical and emotional. And that was a sign for me of how like real that, that moment was. Yeah. It is such a push, right? Like I, I know this as a as a fellow speaker and how 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 those talk whisperers are like, no, you have to you have to bring your heart to the stage, otherwise yeah. this won't reach other people's hearts. And that's difficult. Hmm. It's difficult on a lot of different levels, but I think like we, well, I don't want to answer, I don't want to answer this question. I want to ask this question. Okay. Like, I want to talk about like role models in grief and grief in the black community and grief for men and grief for the age in which you came up. And like, yeah. I think all of that can sort of be covered by a question like what, has been your relationship with grief, you know, coming from your childhood experiences and then up through and and where you sit with it now? I know that's a really yeah. big, like dense, dark matter kind of question, which we could take <laughs> like five. We could do an entire like series on just answering that question. But yeah. if I if I ask you that, like, how has your relationship with grief changed over the decades bringing in all you know about role models and what is safe and what is not safe to share with yourself or share publicly. Yeah. When I was seven or eight, I really should fact check the timeline. I'm always thinking I'm seven or eight and there is a, there's a knowable, there's a knowable <laughs> date here, uh, but I don't know at this second. 
When I was young, my father was killed. He was shot. It was in the middle of the night. Maybe it was a robbery. No one was ever found for it. I remember getting the news from my mother who was living separately from him at the time. So I lived with her and occasionally saw him. And I didn't know him that well. He was like, he was the father. You're supposed to, he was your dad. And uh, I was given the option of going to the funeral. And I was like, nah, I'm good. I don't, looking at a dead body does not feel like a good time to this child. I will pass. And I cried and I felt sad. And then I just kind of closed the door and I lost contact with his family. So I just had my mom and my sister, my older sister, helping bring me up. And I thought, when I thought about him, I think I'm good here, right? Like I'm, I'm supposed to be sad or lost my father. I also know things about him that make it a little more complicated. You know, he had a lot of demons and they showed up in some nasty ways. And I missed exposure to a lot of that. And whatever's supposed to happen in my life is happening. So I'm grateful for the life I have. And this mom, she loves me and I'm healthy and I've gone to college and I've got jobs and I'm paying back loans and falling in love and just living. And I had not really dealt with his death. I'd never fully grieved. I grieved my mother's death more when she died in 2005. That hit me months later, almost a year later, just got knocked on my ass and I'm still still processing her loss because she represented so much, you know, she was both parents and, and, a, and a village at times. And with my father, I, st I found myself on this journey prompted by the universe to reconnect with that grief. A cousin found me on Facebook. I saw you on TV. I think I'm your cousin. I'm like every black person thinks I'm their cousin when they see me on TV. This is not special. But she had the paperwork to prove it. She had the long form birth certificate. She had photos of me <laughs> when I was a baby. And I was like, I know what I look like. I was super cute. That's me. Those Obvious, are my cheeks, yeah. you know? So that began a relationship with my father's mother, also known as my grandmother, mm -hmm. who I had totally lost touch with, with his brother. And, and, but most importantly, with a version of him, I started like having these conversations and moments and angry tirades just stuff I clearly needed to get off my chest. And the evolution continued. I'm a part of a men's group. It's a group of black men. We kind of, we hold each other. We hold each other up. We hold each other accountable. We hold each other emotionally. I've never had anything like this in my life. See dead father above. So I'm in this circle with many men who are fathers. And I'm finding, I'm getting so emotional about something about them like, oh, you're being a dad. I don't know what that's like. And I'm low-key jealous. And I'm also like feeding off of their fatherhood energy that was completely missing from my construction, from my experience. And I've grieved that. You know, you can grieve. I've grieved the person. I've grieved the missed opportunities. I've grieved the, the inability for the person who was my father to heal himself from all the things that ailed him and caused him to ail others. That's a, that's very much a journey from, you know, the kid who didn't want to go to the funeral and, and thought he was okay until his thirties. <laughs> I'm 45 now. 
and, and still adjusting that relationship with grief. That's one version of an answer to your prompt and to your question. So as distant as my relationship with grief was as a child, there was another example which made it very close. And it was an example of collective grief. I was at this private school in DC starting in seventh grade, Sidwell Friends School, it's pretty famous now. Small black community of students and parents. My mother's a member of the Parents of Black Students Organization, organize a gathering, at, for, like a meeting, like a little revolutionary sleeper cell meeting. That's what you know we do in white schools. And we were, uh, she organized us into a circle and we all closed our eyes. Ooh. And she had us imagine that we were in the bowels of a ship mm. being brought here. And just to feel what is, what does that feel like? What are you hearing? What are you sensing? Can we feel gratitude for those people who made it through that journey so that we could be here on this stage, in this meeting room, wherever? And she asked us to mourn. There's so much of the Black experience here that is about persevering, making a way out of no way. There are literally thousands of songs that channel the same energy, resonate at pretty much the same frequency of like just getting through it and not pausing to acknowledge it. And that was a really early modeling for me of the power of pausing, of collectively mourning and grieving and acknowledging the hurt and the pain. There's, there's a lot of racial movement education stuff, which is trying to get like white people to acknowledge and get men to acknowledge what they've done to women. There's all kinds like in the power dynamic, get the powerful quote unquote, to admit or acknowledge, but we all have a version of that. And I think there's a lot of, you know, experience in the black community that's like, I don't want to, I don't want to touch that. That's too painful. That connects too many dots. I don't want to see that picture. And it's really hard. It's really hard to do it, <laughs> to like sit still with it. And then I like breathe through it and shed the tears and then find hopefully through the other side of it, ways and reasons to keep going. The duality I'm holding right now is I'm pretty exhausted of the struggle and pain story. Mm. I'm exhausted of the like convince white people to be better humans so that I can be human story. And so I'm, you know, looking at other joyful, hopeful ways of being that don't require waiting for someone else or accepting as the main narrative suffering. That just doesn't, it doesn't fit me anymore. <laughs> and so I, acknowledgement and evolution, transcendence, parallel paths to freedom, like joy and silliness. That's also really, really, really important to me increasingly. You know, I think about your writing about the killing of unarmed black men and black boys. I think about the the rage and the grief and the mourning. You've written, America's addicted to watching me die, to watching itself die. 
And as I was getting ready for our conversation today, I was like, there's a reason why I started with your joy. Mm -hmm. When we are talking about what it's like to be black in this community, and I'm saying this as a white person who doesn't fucking know anything about it, but like the, there is this like relentless narrative of pain and suffering and you have to fight to not be only identified as that. Yeah. Which is just like, hello, it's already exhausting to stay alive in a system that keeps trying to make you dead and hold you down and hold you back. And we also have to fight this hard to have joy, to access joy and that that joy and joy is really hard one, right? Like we prize resilience right. instead of addressing the systems that force you to be resilient. Right. I mean, it's just such a, it's just such trash yeah. and to, to be able to ferociously hold on to joy is such a powerful thing. You know, like I, I, I can talk myself in circles on this one, but I, I think that there's, there's also something in what you said that leaving the white folks aside for a moment, mm -hmm. like it's, it's hard to get people to continue to hold their gaze on how much pain and suffering there is, right? Like seeing black men die over and over and over again on the news seeing black trans women die over and over and over again on the news, seeing high maternal death rates for black women, like it's just fucking relentless. Yeah. And touching the grief of that, like I get it that people don't want to touch that. Mm -hmm. We don't want to touch grief in general. Right. Like we don't want to talk about any kind of grief and you start yeah. to get into the complex systems of grief and the overwhelming grief and the preventable grief. And it just it sort of fries the circuits. Is there a way that you have found to not do the transactional joy to celebration thing, but mm. to speak into that grief and that anger in a way that feels like it? it does the grief justice in a way. When I do public speaking, since COVID, during COVID, during my public talks during COVID, I dropped a lot of my put on diplomacy. Mm. I'm a natural peacemaker. I was in my family as a kid. I would help my mom negotiate with an angry motorist or neighbor, or I'd write letters on behalf, you know, to try to get through some challenge in a peaceful, diplomatic, positive way. And so I'm the family diplomat and I've worked in school in certain circumstances. And that's just, I honed that. For a while I thought, oh, this is just who I am. I'm just this naturally positive person. And that's a part of the story. I also think there's a part of it, which is like for me to show real rage and anger it can be threatening to people and become a threat to myself. Yeah. So I have to manage those weightier emotions, those more volatile parts of myself, because that's just a story that I've seen too many times. He was in a rage. He was coming right for me. He looked threatening. He reached suddenly. I'm like, I'm not reaching for nothing. I'm, I staple my driver's license to my forehead when I drive now. It's a little special holder in the mm -hmm. baseball cap. It's mm -hmm. great. Mm -hmm. So. You know, this is a reasonable solution to an unreasonable problem. <laughs> Just baseball cap visors for your license and registration, pre-shipped to all people of color. 
I found during COVID, I I lost the ability to maintain that diplomatic air. And I just let more of the anger show. Mm. There's a there's a physical kind of metaphor for this. When most of my presentations pre-COVID, I had amazing slides, Megan. I'm so good at like PowerPoint, keynote. That is not and a skill I, I have, no. I could just work, give me like some Getty images, a little bit of Photoshop, my font selection, you know, good sans serif font. Like, oh, let's go, let's crush this. And part of the show, even the TED talk we mentioned, mm -hmm. that's a slideshow. That is a you know, slideshow. There is, it's timed, it's color coded. It's almost a game. And I was, I really prided myself on that. That's also a, a shield, mm. you know? And so I put that down. I don't use slides anymore. Now that we're back in person doing live events, they're like, what do you need for AV? Just a microphone and, and light and a backup mic in case something goes wrong. That's all. Maybe a chair if I get tired <laughs> or want to strut around or lean on it with a smooth affect. Yeah, a little prop. But I I was not one prior to let anger into my talks. I let it flow now. It comes across in my writing much more. My way of not transacting through to get to the joy is to like fully experience the grief, the mourning, the anger, the rage, and communicate it much more than I'm used to. I've got to let it out <laughs> when it's when I hold it in when I suppress it with a perfectly timed in place but not heartfelt bit of humor oh look everything's okay <laughs> my voice goes up in the black it's all fine that's a that's a telltale sign I have learned the physical tells of myself when am I holding back and I'm with my partner um, Elizabeth you know she I am blessed and cursed with a partner who has an incredible radar incredibly emotional radar. And so she knows when I'm not being fully forthcoming, like there's no faking it till you make it with her, <laughs> which is a real problem, Megan. Yes, like yes, a real, yes. like you gotta be able to keep some stuff from your part. Not like, you know, crimes. I'm just like, just bake. <laughs> Did you buy the thing? Yeah, I'll get to, I was gonna, oh man, she knows. Damn. So I've, I've gotten more reps in, in practice in my most, you know, intimate and close relationship with what happens when I open that door. And it's, it's harder and it's better, right? I won't, it's just, it's not like, oh yeah, I just, I experienced my grief now and all of my darker emotions and life's great. You Woo! know, like every moment is just, Mwah. that's <laughs> not the story. It's, no. This is not a quick fix. This is not, but going through the experience it just increasingly feels like me, like the right thing. And then, you know, I can seek out other types of experiences. There's this thing flying around black men frolicking. It's just <laughs> the silliest TikTok, Instagram reels. I don't know who started it, but it's just, you know, dudes holding up the selfie cam, their arm as selfie stick, running through fields mm -hmm. <laughs> like oh we frolicking i didn't they didn't tell me we was frolicking yo <laughs> and one i i have this uh this brother arjuna o'neill he's a coach and le men's leadership counselor and i've been you know working with him and becoming friends with him at the same time and he shared this with me and he did a video i'm like i want to frolic this is a, this is amazing we never see men frolicking right 
we're not supposed to like frolicking is what girls do or Mm -hmm. children or these like weaker beings that we crush in our minds because we don't want to be anything like that Mm -hmm. about men's business which is stoicism and pain and suppressed human experiences that's what it is to be a man uh to let your inner child run rampant through your adult life because you know no one modeled for us how to deal with these things except through maybe violence or alcohol or other substances or just deep deep silence Mm. so i i really kind of experience those joyful moments more fully when I myself have gone through the mournful moments too. Yeah. There's something about finding ways to be real like that. Yeah. With yourself, with people with whom you feel trust, who who can be trusted with that depth, right? And yeah. then being able to bring more of more of that self out into the world. Right. It's like it's not the the math equation of like feel the pain, go get your joy. It's more the the more you come into relationship with what is true and real for you and find ways to communicate and connect inside that, the more of everything becomes available. Right. Yeah. And you you mentioned like I love that frolicking TikTok. It's awesome. I will link to it, everybody. But like there is something dangerous in being playful mm-hmm. or something not allowed. Subversive. Subversive in being <laughs> yeah. playful. And, yeah. you know, you think like, oh, it's easy. Like, just go do this and this. But like we have, we're talking like decades, centuries of so many things that say exactly how you described it. Right. Like play is weak. Yeah. Joy is weak. And it takes a lot of strength and trust to play with other grown-ups. Yeah, it does. That's a good one. That's a really good one. I remember a poster from maybe the 90s, everything I needed to know I learned in kindergarten. Oh, right. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Something very close to that. What was that guy's name? Oh, I'm going to have to go look that. it up. But yeah, yeah, yeah. We're both, we're both, both like, where searches. is it in the brain library? <laughs> Everything I needed to know I learned in kindergarten. It's about like sharing and taking turns and like not wiping your nose on your sleeve. All, <laughs> all, of, it, all of that stuff. But there is yes. like there is there is something very scary about joy and very yeah. scary about play. And if there is anything transactional in exploring the depth of emotions or the truth of emotions it's that you know the the more you come into connection and relationship with yourself in that stuff the more you can mm-hmm. come into relationship with that stuff in others absolutely and i think like this this sort of also brings us to again listening to your collected works and reading you and listening to your podcasts and watching your talks like not only does joy and celebration weave through so much of who you are and how you show up, but also community Mm. as restorative medicine, as necessary medicine for surviving what needs to be survived. So if we bring community into this, I feel like that's a nice dovetail from being safe enough to play with grownups. Like, yeah, where does community come into all of this conversation for you? Uh, As yearning and longing in part as i'm you know still relatively mobile in my life and i'm feeling needs to root more <laughs> dig into where i live as urgency given age 
and the steady realization like, oh, there may be some, maybe less time ahead than behind, like that kind of mm-hmm. moment. I will live to 130. Absolutely. But, you know, mm-hmm. If I'm keeping myself in the range of regular mortality, then, you know, 45 is a good time to start thinking about that kind of stuff. Uh, and, you know, who do I love? Who am I spending time with? Like, who's my chosen community? Whose emails am I going to read first? Mm-hmm. You know, like mm-hmm. this could be my last email. Right? <laughs> I can sense the overthinking. Yeah. Yes. Okay. All right. Also, maybe I shouldn't be reading email. <laughs> I think I'm I'm just appreciating the specialness of trusted community increasingly. This black men's group I'm a part of has been so healing and beautiful to have a community of fellow men who are being emotionally open with each other, really open, who are nudging each other toward that vulnerability. I'll bring that, bring that challenge your face into the group. There's some things we cannot do alone. And most things worth doing, we probably, you know, shouldn't do alone. There's just more, literally more with others. And we can share burdens and there's a lot of practical values to having other people around. So yeah, I, I, I think I'm becoming more conscious and more actively aware of like why I'm drawn to people, what groups of people and community kind of bring out in me. And there's an, a magic and an alchemy in a community setting of being there for each other in different ways, in different moments and becoming one through the group, mm. like a forest does. Exactly. You know, everything is everything. And then we're just trees with thumbs and, you know, more selfish and tendencies. <laughs> but it's the idea that these trees have this, you know, underground root system and they hook each other up and one is low on nutrients and one is diseased and transmit information back and forth through fungi, maybe like it, community is a life thing. Right? It's not just a human human thing. And so I just, I'm in awe of that. I I love it. It makes me want to be a better community member and be more intentional with like who I'm in community with and what am I doing? What am I bringing to, you know, a community? What am I offering to a community, which is, and in a non-transactional sense, right? Just for the relationship value. You know, our, our men's group is not a finance group. We're not like investigating each other's come. That might happen at some point, but that's not the goal. It's just to be in relationship. And that's so, it's a real prerequisite, I think, for a, a whole life. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. 
Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because God, I can't stay where I am like I am where it is. This isn't going to work. I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle. And I'm an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, before we get back to my conversation with Baratunde Thurston, I want to tell you about a new way to get answers to your questions about grief. Each month, every month, I host a live video call-in Q&A session just for patrons. If you've ever wanted to know if what you're feeling is normal, come ask me. If you want to know how to have that conversation with your nosy relative who keeps butting into your business with their ideas about what your loss or your experience should look like, come join us. I'll help you figure out how to communicate a boundary where there needs to be a boundary. Once a month, every month, if you've ever wished you could talk to me directly and get your questions answered, this is by far the easiest way to do it. All of the information is at patreon.com backslash Megan Devine, or you can find the link in the show notes. I hope to see you there this month. All right, let's get back to my conversation with author, speaker, television host, ridiculously awesome human being, Baratunde Thurston. We have this pacing in our conversation today of like personal collective, personal collective, personal <laughs> collective, which yeah. I love. I, I, I love a micro macro pacing here and a lot of what you're talking about in your own personal community building, that's part of how to citizen, yeah. right? Is how do we become a true collective culture? How do we show up in our local communities? How do we show up in the larger world, 
right? Yeah. There's there's something. And the good, the the, you know, citizen as a verb is our whole thing, and you can't citizen alone. It's 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 antithetical to the idea of being a member of society and being um, in a in a membership club. Like that's what social belonging is, whether it's formalized as a democracy or a voting precinct or not. We're all part of many communities and we have power, even if we're living in an explicitly authoritarian state, we still have some power to shape how that community operates, you know, and what we give to and what we get out of it. And the good news, you know, in terms of this personal to communal micro macro vibe that I've been learning <laughs> and I had a very formal idea of citizening and it's like, oh, we, we elect these people and we go to community meetings and very external, Megan. It's very like the world out there is broken. Let me go with my Virgo-ness and, and my male fix it and let's, let's fix it. I've identified problems. I have this brain. I'm going to use it to help the situation out. That's what we need. And yeah, but also inside, you know, in here, you know, invest in relationships is one of our pillars of what it means to citizen. And the, the long version is invest in relationships with yourself, with others and the planet around you. And so in order to have a relationship with the city council or your block committee or your office working group, it really helps to have a relationship with yourself. And so we can start citizening and experiencing and practicing and benefiting from community in way more tangible, close and proximate and, and informal ways. And that just, I don't know, that was a relief <laughs> for me. I've, I've, I've been, I think I've been inundated with a kind of civics education model, which is, you know, how a bill becomes a law and you write Congress and you put a change.org petition and you, you give all your money to like Brian Stevenson for the legacy museum or the lynching museum or whatever. Like you watch black Panther all the time. Right. Right. And you on buy repeat. it on Blu-ray and yeah. DVD and all the streaming services. Mm -hmm. uh, so yes, there's a lot of external stuff that we got to do. And that is aided by doing internal stuff too. And it's just the bar of entry is actually just, it's very low. Frontline is us. And that's, I find that very freeing and like de-stressing. It's like, oh, okay, we all, we literally all have something we can do. Yeah. Great. Yeah, coming, it, it's terrifying, but it's not complicated. Yeah. Right? Coming into relationship with yourself and mm -hmm. practicing telling yourself the truth and listening for that and being brave enough to play and find joy and all of the things. I love that you just said the front line is in us because this is this is so much of what I feel like I, I want to talk about and am talking about. Like yeah. there is liberation in telling the truth about how hard it is to be here sometimes. Mm -hmm. There is real community to be found when you allow what is real to be real. And it does unlock joy and connection and community and the change that we need to bring forth. There's a, a, a study that we came across in making this season of the podcast. The season's all about how do you create a culture of democracy? Mm. Not how do you change the makeup of Congress, right? How do you change the, the kind of soil 
that Congress emerges from. <laughs> and because they, they all come from somewhere. Absolutely. Right? They all come from next door, right? They come from the, the classroom next door, the house next door, the office next door. And so we're in community with all these eventual leaders, including ourselves. In the conflict resolution episodes, one with Priya Parker and one with a group called Beyond Conflict, there's a study that reveals that we're basically not as divided as we think we are. That the way I think Republicans think of me is far worse than what they actually think of me, which is terrifying because I'm pretty sure they don't think too much. <laughs> no, undermining the science, but we would we would know that for ourselves if we showed up honestly in our relationships, right? If we trusted ourselves to be ourselves with each other, and instead, a lot of what has happened is we've outsourced that trust and faith to mediators technological mediators, journalistic or allegedly journalistic mediators who have a profit motive to convince us of something that isn't as true as they want it to be. You know, how devastatingly and intractably divided we are, how much trash so-and-so thinks you are. You hear what they said about your mama. Like that's the business model for mm -hmm. a lot of news media. Absolutely. And you believe what they said about your mama. Who said what about my what? Mm -hmm. Oh, it's on. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? And to be in real relationship doesn't mean one of us has to interact with all 8 billion of us. That's That doesn't scale, but it can scale at intermediate steps. If I'm more real with you, more real with my partner, more real with my team and my staff, that a little permission structure for all those people to mirror that back and be real with me and each other and the relationships that they're a part of that I'm not a part of. And then we get this ripple effect. It's, yeah. I wouldn't call it trickle down. I'd call it kind of bubble up mm. right? as a different kind of metaphor so that we end up creating the environment and the culture we want. That's some of the power of that authentic experience and that real experience of pain sometimes, of anger sometimes, of joy sometimes. Like bring your real, some of us smother our joy too. It's yeah. inappropriate. It's inappropriate. It's, this is a professional. You know. This is a professional and serious times we are living in. Yeah. 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 And, it's, and you see, you know, and then we are coached to perform that as evidence of leadership. Well, real leaders I'm cracking jokes in a meeting, you know, adding gifts to the Slack channel. What do you, <laughs> shareholders might think you're not serious about maximizing their value. <laughs> You're right. Back to pillaging and destroying right, the right, planet right, we live right, on. Right. I should stay laser focused on that. You're right. Yes. No, no distraction. Well, and this is this is true, right? Like that we can destroy others and the environment when we otherize them and when Absolutely. they aren't human and when we don't have that limbic resonance with them to go all dorky for a second. When we think of them as them. Yes. Right. Well, that thing over there, that forest, that tree, that nation, that person. That not me is what we're saying, <laughs> that that other, you know, as you, as you said. So if we can shift that, it's Valerie Kaur, our very first guest. I can't talk about her enough because she set us on a certain path mm. with her book, See No Stranger. That stranger is just a part of me I do not yet know. That's the summary of the book. You should still read it, but that's the basic point. And so if we can internalize the external, then we're actually being very selfish when we care for others. That's a neat little... It's a neat little you know, thing. Trick, yeah. a little semantic hack. Yep. And we we are a part of and not apart from. 
And so I keep, man, I keep bumping into this annoying lesson, Megan, in like different areas of Damn my it. life. Like, okay, I did a podcast about citizening. Cool, cool, cool. Yeah, we're all one. Great. And then I've got a little men's group over here. Oh, we're all one. Here we go again. Here we go. I'm out in the woods making them this PBS America outdoors. Oh, we're part of nature, not apart from. We're all one. What's with the oneness? Who's who's writing these these bullet points in my prompter? I have actually in my notes this whole like concept of like we're all one. So like <laughs> I'm I'm apparently I've been I've been conscripted to be part of your bullet pointing. For oh, this, for this life lesson, but, but here's, here's, <laughs> but here's the thing, right? Is that same topic, different tones, right? Like yeah. this is something that happens very often. Like when we start talking about race and inequality and injustice, you've got some folks being like, but we're all one. There's no <laughs> difference here. We're all just can't, we're all just, oh my God. Right. Yeah. But there's a way that we can talk about our interrelatedness and our interconnection as a way of bypassing the real work that needs to be done. Yes. And there is a way to engage with our interrelatedness that actually makes things better. Thank you for that distinction. Yes. Yeah. Because the whole we are one thing is really irritating, right? <laughs> but so much of what you're doing in this whole like we are one thing and I I, yeah. I hear that and I, I see that theme running through in the way that you're claiming it and it's like there's this drive to embrace the complexity and that yeah. you don't have this part without this part and you don't have the healing or the restoration of this part without this relationship and, and it mm -hmm. it's all about relatedness not about the erasure of difference. Absolutely. Absolutely. That That's it. That's it. And the people who want to skip to the happy ending, mm. you know, they're just kind of like reading that last sentence out like, oh, we're all one. Cool. Then I don't have, I don't have to do anything. I don't have to do anything. <laughs> that's the bypass thing that you talked about. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the healing right, requires acknowledgement of injury and pain. And so there's some necessary sequencing of some of these steps. I do believe they head in that same direction. I think, you know, we've created a lot of compelling fictions for ourselves that draw lines between us. And then we've built powerful structures along those fictional lines to make the impacts really felt. And that's the, that's, a, it's almost a paradox. It's certainly a kind of a conundrum. You could take it as okay, race isn't scientifically real, but it's a socially constructed thing that was based in law and finance and physical labor and actual abuse and real blood. So racism is, that's kind of a logical slippery thing. If race isn't real, how is racism real? Because we made it real. That's the power of our minds and our collective minds. US dollar's not real, actually. It's just like a collective shared delusion that's powerful enough to get us to go to work and pay for food and housing right? <laughs> with this made up thing that has no basis in like physical reality. So fiction is powerful. You know? Things that aren't real can make things be real. And that is a, that's a beautiful confusion and then a beautiful tension and paradoxical thing. But I think some of the best things in life are, Right, they are and they aren't at the same time. It's they're, they're that's kind of a quantum thing. 
keep bumping also into quantum stuff. Keeps quantum coming stuff. Out my friend Sam Raider, she talks about quantum all the time. And you know, quantum, you know, Marvel keeps launching these quantum movies. So from, from pop culture to like deep, you know, right. emotional and psychological work, quantum keeps coming up. So there must be something to it. There must be. I mean, biggest living organism in the entire world is microrhizome, right? So, like, that's quantum is and isn't we all at the work same for time. Them. Like, that's, we that's really. <laughs> what, is, the, what is your biome telling you to say next? <laughs> the visible and the invisible worlds. Oh my gosh. I'm not going to keep you for the next three years here on this call, but like we didn't even get to talk about like forest ecology and how that, like all of the, all of the things. So I, I I'm going to pull my own brain yeah. back from the radness of quantum overlaps with everything and set us up for the last complex thing that we'll discuss oh on our time together. Great. All right. At the end of your 2019 TED Talk, now Helen Walters asked you a question, and I'm going to completely paraphrase here. She said, basically, there's so much ugliness in our culture everywhere, all around, and she wondered if you had any hope. Uh And going back to what you just said about the the power of fictions that we create Mm. and the power of stories that we create, your answer back then in 2019 was about freeing ourselves from the lies that we'd been told. And so we're sitting here three years later, you've already talked about how things have changed for you about what you're willing to do and how you're willing to show up in those three years since. But I want to revisit that question. Yeah. Knowing what you know and living what you've lived, knowing what's unfolded since that stage three years ago, what does hope look like for you now? Hope looks like a tree. It's deeply rooted and it's striving to grow it's willing to change it's not threatened by growing a new limb or maybe losing one it's just it's in the nature of treeness to experience all these things and i think there's something for me about hope that it has to remain very grounded there is a fleeting ethereal wispy hope that you can't grab onto it's like smoke I don't like that one. I think that one's less useful. It makes for pretty words, but maybe not much else. So I hope that's grounded. I hope that grieves <laughs> so that, you know, at some point it can help celebrate. That's more of my flavor. The thing that I was feeling in that stage moment, which was a very unscripted moment, by mm-hmm. the way, it caught me off guard. I was like, I'm done. I'm good. She's like, Wait, <laughs> nope, one more no, thing. No, you're not. <laughs> the fiction part that we were just talking about is so, it's, it's kind of the whole thing. My hope is grounded in our creative possibility, in our own creativity. And we can be destructively creative, but I also think we can be beautifully, you know, hopefully creative. And so when I look at, when I'm grounded in the evidence of what we've chosen to make real from our fiction, it's pretty devastating. You know, there's, there's a, you could have an indictment sheet from a grand jury for abuse of imagination by the human species and never finish reading out that list. But there's a lot more to it and we're capable of a lot more. So even, even the devastating things we've done to ourselves and each other is evidence that we can create anything that we think serves us and then follow through on it. 
And it's not just a negative example. There are many positive examples of what we have created, whether systems of government, beautiful works of art, collaborative, cooperative economic things. Like we can use tech differently. We can use money differently. Like we can be in relation to all of these tools in a way that really serves the collective us, allows us to be collectively selfish. So my hope is grounded in a lot of dirt, you know, and pain and in the knowledge that ultimately we just make things up. So if we are aware of that more, can we choose more consciously to make up something that's better for all of us? And I believe we can. That's awesome. It is such a joy to spend time with you. Thank you so much for you being too. here with me and with us. Obviously, we're going to link to everything and everywhere that people can find you, your TED Talk and your podcast and America Outdoors in the show notes. Is there anything else you want listeners to know about where to find you? Yeah, I'm, I'm wherever baratundes are found. <laughs> I've been, which is like, I'm pretty much, I'm not the only one, but I'm like the, the, the easiest to link to. Mm. There's a baratunde in Atlanta who I'm a big fan of. I have to meet him at his new business. He does he does nanotechnology stuff. He's oh, a real wow. science. Yeah, Baratunde cool. Cola. Check check out the other Baratunde. Um so what you're saying is you're Googleable. I'm I'm Googleable, so find that. And yeah. I would just, you know, I've been writing a lot with this new media company, Puck. Uh, it's at Puck.news. And that's where I'm exploring more slowly and deeply a lot of these themes race, tech, democracy, and our possibilities with all of that. So if you want to have a textual experience, check out what I'm up to at Puck and what my colleagues there are up to. I'm proud of all their reporting. I am not a reporter, but it's good to be in the company of people who really, really do that job while I get to opine on things Excellent. <laughs> and, and process my emotions and feelings uh, through words on a screen. This has been, I feel like I need a nap. Um, this, is, <laughs> this has been an experience that is so beautiful uh, it's been this really like heart forward heart open journey thank you for inviting me into what feels like kind of a sacred space here oh, and, and for what you're doing to help us all be okay with not being okay and to explore our relationship with grief uh, and with hope appreciate it thank you so much all right, everybody, stay tuned. I'll be right back with your questions to carry with you right after this. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step, and you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because God, I can't stay where I am, like I am, where it is. This isn't going to work. I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of MoviePhone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, Chief Marketing and Growth Officer at AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Each week, I leave you with some questions to carry with you until we meet again. You know what really struck me through this entire conversation with Baratunde was how easy it was. How easy it was to weave through all the different topics and aspects of life we discussed. Like, there's something in that for me. That when you're living this stuff, when both joy and mourning or celebration and grief, when both of those things are welcomed and acknowledged in your life, it's just like, it's easy to move back and forth between them. Being okay is normal. (laughs) There's no need to like set aside a special scheduled time to like talk about heavy discussions about um, like, you don't have to do that stuff. When you have relationships where everything is welcome, you just do it. You talk about what's there when it's there. And it's so easy. And this whole conversation made me feel really hopeful about the joy that I stitch into my life, that there's joy in building relationships and friendships that include everything, whatever is up at any given moment. It also really stressed the importance of play, which is something that I full disclosure, often forget to prioritize in my own life. And I love what Baratunde said about his hope being bound with the human power of creativity. Like, how can we not have hope knowing what's in our power to create? That's a really interesting idea. What about you? What stuck with you from this conversation? Everybody's going to take something different from the show, but I do hope you found something to hold on to. If you want to tell me how today's show felt for you or you have thoughts about what we covered, let me know. Tag at Refuge in Grief on all the social platforms so I can hear how this conversation affected you. 
You can follow the show at It's OK Pod on TikTok and Refuge and Grief everywhere else to see video clips from the show. Also, use the hashtag It's OK Pod on all of the platforms, not only so that I can find you when I go looking, and I totally do search that hashtag so I can see what you're talking about, but use that hashtag so that other people can find you too. It's a really cool way to start building conversations and community. None of us are entirely okay, and it's time we start talking about that together. Hashtags, just one tool in building the world that we want. Yeah? It's okay that you're not okay. You're in good company. That's it for this week, friends. Remember to subscribe to the show and leave a review. Your reviews help make the show easier to find, which furthers our mission of getting more people to have interesting conversations about difficult things. And your reviews are really special to me, and I love to read them. (laughs) Coming up next week, musician and author Sarah Ramey joins me to talk about chronic illness and why having your music show up in a hit TV series is a mixed bag of awesome and exhausting. Follow the show on your favorite platforms, friends, so you don't miss an episode. Want more on these topics? Look, grief is everywhere. As my dad says, daily life is full of everyday grief that we don't call grief. Learning how to talk about this stuff without cliches or platitudes or simplistic dismissive statements is an important skill for everyone. Whether you're trying to support a friend going through a hard time, or you work in the helping professions, or you just want to be better at humaning. Get help to have those conversations with trainings, professional resources, and my best-selling book, It's Okay That You're Not Okay, plus the guided journal for grief at megandevine.co. It's Okay That You're Not Okay, the podcast is written and produced by me, Megan Devine. Executive producer is Amy Brown, co-produced by Elizabeth Fazio, logistical and social media support from Micah, post-production and editing by the ever-patient Houston Tilly, music provided by Wavecrush, and today's background noise provided by the endless spring drone of chainsaws cleaning up after the L.A. winter rains. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards. Like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast.
I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. And we host Stages Podcast. Binge close to 100 episodes. Hear the inside stories from backstage and behind the scenes as we go beyond the resume and into the heart of creativity and what it really takes to be in the business of show business. Don't miss our chats with this season's Tony nominees. If you love theater and entertainment, you are going to love Stages Podcast. Subscribe to Stages Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts and visit us at stagespodcast.net.